See you. I'm doing well, uh, and thank you for uh, joining us. If you're uh, live streaming from home or wherever you are, uh, we're going to talk a lot today about followership. That famous command that Jesus gives Peter to follow him. Um, we, as human beings, follow. We follow a lot, uh, and one of the things that I'm sure, like me, you have been following over the past couple of weeks is just. Uh, the incredible mounting tension, cultural and political tension in our nation at this moment that kind of culminated in um, incredible events nearly unprecedented in the history of our country last week. So what I want to do before we begin is uh, to be obedient to Paul's admonition to the Romans to pray for our government, to pray for our leaders, especially at this very tender and very tense moment as power is transitioning what are we, on Tuesday from one administration to another and everything that's wrapped up into that, uh, that we are called to be people of peace and of gentleness, of kindness, and yet those people of truth. And so I just want to, as a church, take a moment to time out, to pause, reflect on that, uh, and to offer it into the sovereign hands of the Lord. So let's pray. Father, as uh, most people within the sound of my voice praying are, are citizens of the United States, we want to first and foremost thank you for our nation. We thank you for our country. We thank you for its laws. We thank you for its flourishing. We recognize rightly that absent the kingdom of God, there is no perfect kingdom on earth. But by your sovereign hand, you have ordained that we would live and move and breathe in you here in this place and in this nation. Father, we thank you for the gift of authority, for your word says there is no authority except that which comes from you in Romans 13. And that all governing authorities are ordained and instituted by you. Father, I think back to the time when Paul was writing those words under uh, incredibly um, evil leadership of Rome. And yet still, he recognized that you are sovereign, that you are in control. And so, Father, we pray that we would rest our anxieties in you. We pray that we would look to your kingdom first and to ours second. We pray for the leaders of this nation, both those outgoing and those incoming, that you would guide them, that you would bless them in your ways. Father, that you would convict them, and that ultimately they would come like we have come to know your son as Lord. To recognize that true power and true authority rests in your hands. That all power and all authority are given to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Father, we pray for peace from the Prince of Peace, who is our ultimate and true ruler and king. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And one of the ways that we're called is by listening to, hearing, understanding, and responding to a call that Peter had been given to him uh, after breakfast in Galilee from Jesus. Follow me. 
Let's think about where we've been so far. This is right at the very end of John. If you look at the next couple of verses that we're going to go over next week, uh, it's the end of the narrative. This is the end of the storytelling, and John is finally bringing his gospel to a conclusion. And so it's really significant that Jesus' last words recorded in John's gospel are, you follow me. Well, why then and to whom is Jesus talking? It's Peter. Remember last week on the shores of Galilee, Jesus in his resurrected state appears before the disciples after having cooked breakfast for them. And we noticed how Jesus is still serving. All power, all authority has been given to him. God has lifted him from death. He has been declared victorious. He is the king of kings, the prince of peace, the mighty God, and yet he's still serving. Jesus retains his servant heart. And during this breakfast, Jesus speaks tender words over Peter, a threefold restoration for Peter's threefold denial. And Jack pointed out that Jesus didn't demand an explanation from Peter. He didn't say, Peter, are you sorry about what you've done? Uh, what were you thinking? Uh, I was looking at you dead in the eye when you were denying me. I told you this was going to... None of that comes from his lips. He just shows Peter grace and then gives him a commission to feed his sheep. And Jesus also told Peter about a pretty grim future. Jesus says that one day there were going to be persecutors who, who and this is verse 18 of 21, stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now, you could wonder exactly what does that mean, but John tells us, kind of in parentheses, this he, being Jesus, said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. So we don't have to wonder what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're going to die a death like mine with outstretched arms. And it was going to be glorious because of your outstretched arms, uh, mimicking or an echoing of Christ's crucifixion. And we know that Peter had this perspective later in his life when he wrote in 1 Peter 3.13, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So he really took that to heart, but not right away. And that's kind of what we're seeing in this text today. Jesus took Peter aside for a private conversation, and right on the heels of telling Peter how he would die, Peter turns around and notices that there's this other disciple who's following them. So let's reread this passage and resituate ourselves in this moment. After saying, or, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me, this being the manner you're going to die, Peter. He said to Peter, follow me. So Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them the one who also had leaned Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, that's John, he said to him, Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, being Peter, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So this saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it's my will until he remains, uh, he remain until I come, what is that to you? 
So John, this disciple whom Jesus loved, followed Jesus and Peter, and Peter is probably contemplating and trying to process exactly what Jesus just told him. You're going to die a death like mine. And probably one of the questions that Peter's asking in his mind is, why me? Right? I, I mean, if you were told, like God came to you and was like, hey, so you're going to die by crucifixion, you would say, what? After the shock wore off, uh, hopefully we would say, if, if that's your will, Lord, let it come. But why me? <laughs> right? Well, I was hoping to die of old age with dog in my lap in my cabin in the woods, you know, like, that's kind of what I had in mind. You've got something else in mind, okay, why me? And then while he's asking why me, he turns and notices John behind him. And, and as Peter has had a bad habit of doing all throughout this gospel, he begins to compare himself to others. He's probably thinking, well, if I'm going to die some gruesome death, Lord, what about this man? As in, well, what's going to happen to him? Maybe something worse? Or maybe it's not going to, what about him? How come I have to do this? And it's interesting to me that both the KJV and the message kind of pick up on this nuance in the text. And I think they both translate it better than the ESV here. The KJV says, what shall this man do? As in what's going to become of him? Like how is he going to die? And the message says, master, what's going to happen to him? As in, well, if I'm going to die that way, what about John? Peter can't stop comparing himself to others, can he? And he often, when comparing himself to others, inflates his own importance and inflates his own ability. Remember, think about Jesus' two famous statements to, I'm sorry, Peter's two famous statements to Jesus in John. There's too many first names in that sentence. When, when Jesus is starting to wash the disciples' feet, what does is, what is Peter say? You will never wash my feet. Look how humble I am. John took the foot washing. You know, Thomas took the foot washing. But I am not going to take the foot washing. See how humble I am? I'm humbler than they are. Another famous statement, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. Look how brave I am. I'm the first one to say that. The other disciples wouldn't lay their life down for you, Jesus, but I will. And both times, Jesus was, of course, grieved in heart, right? He straight up calls Peter out for not allowing him to wash his feet, and then Peter jumps to, well, if the disciples just washed, had their feet washed, I want my whole body washed, right? Because I, I want to be cleaner than the disciples around me. Where did this so-called humility and bravery from Peter get him? At Christ's trial, Peter was too concerned about his own image that he denied being a Christian, so he's not humble, he's proud. And Peter was too scared of the crowd that he denied Jesus altogether. So Peter is not brave, he's a coward. And you think at this point, Peter would stop making comparisons, but he hasn't learned that yet. And so now Peter compares himself once more to one last disciple. If I'm going to die a death like you, Jesus, well then what about him? And this is Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, verse 22, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. 
So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So I think there's three things that I want to draw out, three things I think are important that we need to see in, in John's comment here in his recording of Jesus' response. First, John is clarifying a rumor, this legend, this falsehood. He doesn't want that to continue to spread among the brothers or in the churches. Second, Jesus is commanding Peter not to compare himself to other disciples. And then third, Jesus is inviting Peter to follow him. So let's think about all three of those things with the first one being uh, John is clarifying truth. The, there was a saying spread among the brothers, and John wants to clarify that. Apparently, in John's day, this rumor was spreading like wildfire, so much so that he felt he needed to close his entire gospel by extinguishing it. Did you hear that John's not going to die until Jesus returns? I heard that very same thing, too. John's like 90. He's super old. So maybe it's true, right? You could kind of see how the churches are, you know, that, that could be a rumor that was spreading. And interestingly, uh, this rumor percolated throughout the ages. I mean, throughout all of, of Christianity's existence. And no joke, it exists today. I went on Google and I typed, is the Apostle John, and then the auto thing comes up, or Apostle John is, right? The first suggestion is Apostle John is still alive, right? So there, there are literally thousands and thousands of people asking Google what it thinks about this rumor that the Apostle John is still alive. So, man, people need to read the Bible because John set the record straight before there were records, right? You don't have to ask Google, just ask John. A saying spread that Jesus said that John was going to die, but Jesus didn't actually say that, he's telling us. Trust me, I was there, and he was talking about me, right? So knock it off with that rumor. And that kind of seems like a throwaway point, maybe. Like, yeah, it was really important to the first century church. Um, yeah, I could see why John wouldn't want that kind of a rumor spreading around, but come on, what does that have to do with us today? Hey, if all scripture is inspired by God, it got here for a reason, it can speak to us today, and here's a couple of reasons why I think this speaks to us. There's a lot to learn here, even though it doesn't really seem like it. For example, first, John is gentle with hearers of rumors. John is gentle with people who hear and believe rumors. He calls the rumor a saying. In Greek, it's logos. Basically, it's the same expression we have in English, word got around, logos meaning, meaning word, right? So this word spread around, this word got around, and people started believing it. He could have called it a lie. He could have called it a falsehood. It's the Greek word uh, pseudos, like where we get kind of the, the pseudo word in, in English as well. It has a really negative connotation to it. But he didn't. In other words, John here is not chastising people for believing this rumor, but he's not going to let it continue. Do you see that? He doesn't say, 
for the 50th time, you fools, <laughs> stop believing this dumb lie, right? That's not what he writes. That's what we would write, right? And I think that maybe he's so gentle with the people, partly because it's a rumor they wanted to believe. Think about it from their perspective for a moment. John is the last apostle alive, which means when he dies, Christianity is in its second generation. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Because whenever you had a problem with a church or between individuals or a theological question or an ethical question or a spiritual discipline question, what do you do? You get your elders to write a letter to one of the apostles. Well, now all those guys are dead except one more. And if you heard this rumor that, well, maybe that apostle will not die until Jesus comes back, we can all breathe a sigh of relief. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus is, or I'm sorry, John is empathizing without criticizing, but he's also correcting. Do you see that? He's empathizing without criticizing, but he's also correcting. He does say, I love you guys. I've heard this one too, but you shouldn't believe it because it's not true, even if we want it to be true. I mean, how often do we chastise or judge before we correct our knee-jerk reaction, right? Somebody believes a rumor or a lie or something like that, and the first thing to, we, we go is like, how can you be so stupid to believe that? Right? How can you be so dumb? Like, it's so obvious that that's not true. Right? And that's just not the example that John is, is giving us here. I mean, this is a rumor about him. How many, so that, that changes, it turns the degree up a bit, doesn't it? Somebody heard a rumor or a falsehood about you, and they repeated it to you. You'd be really defensive about it first, wouldn't you? But John gives us this really great example, not to chastise, but to gently correct when people buy into rumors or falsehoods or lies. Uh, Paul in 2 Timothy 2.25 tells Timothy that he ought to correct in gentleness. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing right here from John's example. The second thing we can draw from, from what John is saying here is that John's a good pastor. He cares about his people. He wants them to know truth. But at an even more fundamental, basic level, he's a Christian who cares about truth. When John's doing the reasonable thing, he doesn't want this rumor to slide. He wants to see it answered. Why? Because Christians ought to be known as people who know and are known by truth. And so we value truth. I mean, we worship the one who called himself the truth. As in, he is the fountainhead, the source of where all truth comes from. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. So Christians pursue truth as we follow, capital T, truth. But that's growing increasingly difficult in our culture, isn't it? Oh, what are the buzzwords? We live in post-truth. Uh, we live in fake news era. Um, we creating deep fakes. And soon, within our lifetime, it's going to be very difficult to discern whether or not something in recorded media actually happened. It's a scary thought, especially when you throw artificial intelligence in the mix. Go and be blessed. 
kind of a terrifying prospect for our future, right? So here's where uh, Christianity steps in and says, ah, we know truth, as in the one who embodied it, who embodies it. And so we have a responsibility as worshipers of the truth to love and promote truthfulness in all arenas of life, especially in theology, but in all arenas of life. And so I guess the question we could ask ourselves is, what do we do with rumors? What if we were in the position of being in one of John's churches, for example, and we kept hearing this thing that John's not going to die until Jesus comes back? So what should our first reaction be to stumbling across a rumor that we want to be true? These are the hard ones to get rid of. The lies, the rumors that we really want to be true. What's our first thing we do? We see it, we read it, we like it, literally, by clicking. (laughs) And then uh, do we repeat, repost, retweet, or should we temper our emotions for a moment, ask objectively, is this true, and pursue the truth of the matter? Because simply because we want something to be true doesn't mean it is. And this is especially difficult if it's clouded in nuance or mystery or there's some kind of like comprehensive distance. I don't quite understand what's being said, but I agree with it, so it must be true, right? John wasn't going to live until Christ's return, even if all the churches wanted him to. John knew it, and he had to tell the truth to people. But that's what we do with the, you know, rumors or falsehoods that are not true that we want to be true. What about the ones that we don't want to be true? It's the first thing we do. We read something we don't like. It's a falsehood, a rumor, or whatever. Is, the, is our first thing to lament or lambast or lash out? Or should, again, we temper our emotions and pursue the truth of the matter? I mean, why waste emotional energy and anxiety and anger on something that isn't true? What should upset us more is that falsehoods exist, not the falsehoods themselves, right? So John here chose to pursue truth. He tempered his emotions, he corrected error for the sake of the gospel. And he gives us a lesson in what that looks like in the life of the believers. All Christians must follow John's example. We're not given another option. We must be known as people of both gentleness and truth, not one or the other. We must be known as being reasonable. This is the word that Paul uses in Philippians 4, 5. Speaking to the church, he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So it's not that we just pursue gentleness and truth within our own community, but everywhere Christians ought to be known as people who are reasonable, So, John's comment gives us a lot. What I want to do now is consider Jesus' response to Peter, which gives us even more. Verse 21, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, so when Peter saw John, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, being Peter, If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Follow me. There are two things I think we can learn from Christ's response to Peter. First, not every disciple of Jesus is going to share similar experiences. And then second, all disciples are invited to follow him anyhow. Basically, Jesus tells Peter, what's it to you? Just follow me. 
And that kind of seems really short, maybe even a little bit terse, not in a negative sense, but I don't owe you an explanation, Peter. Follow me. Uh, who are you to tell me what to do with my disciples? I think is, is kind of tucked very tightly into that what is it to you comment. Um, if it seems a little tense, okay, good, it should be. Let that moment be tense. Jesus is the way, he's the life. If he wants one of his disciples to follow him in a way that leads to longer life than Peter, then that's his prerogative. He's God. He does what he desires and what he wants. No one on earth is in any position to question him otherwise. God is sovereign. But the good thing about God's sovereignty is that he's ultimately good. And for this reason, Paul writes in Romans 3, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Even if this thing seems to be tragic, like the future execution of Peter. So, yeah, if it feels short, intense, it should. But it's also very illuminating for us. Not every disciple is going to share the same experience. It's essentially what Jesus is implicitly telling Peter. I mean, think about it. Both Peter and John have walked very similar paths for the past three years. They've been following their rabbi, Jesus. But now, even though their paths have been parallel, they're about to divert. They both followed Jesus, but now their lives are going to be going in very different directions, and they're going to have very different outcomes as well. So, does that mean God is going to be more or less glorified and honored? at the outcomes of these disciples? No. Because Christ does not call us to an outcome, instead he calls us to obedience. This is really important. I think this is at the core of what we're being told here in this passage. Christ does not call us to an outcome. He calls us to obedience. That obedience leads to an outcome but it's an outcome that he, being God, has chosen to keep much of it a mystery and concealed from us. He's given us glimpses of the outcome to come. But in large part, he's keeping that hidden so that its gift and its joy will emanate throughout eternity for us when we receive that inheritance. Christ doesn't call us to an outcome, he calls us to obedience. Jesus is not telling Peter well, I like John more than you. Let's face it, Peter. <laughs> it's been a bumpy road, hasn't it? So I called you the rock. You thought it was something cool, right? No, you're like the rock in my shoe I can't get rid of. And because I like John more than you, he's going to live a longer life. And you, not so much. Okay? That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, I love you both. You're both my servants, but as it is with all servants, no two servants get the same task. We have a big mission to accomplish, and I'm distributing tasks and their outcomes among my servants whom I love. 
I have a different task for you, Peter, and it's still going to bring me glory, so follow me. We have a bad habit of following Peter's example, don't we? We all share common faith. Many of us even share common experiences. And we went to have the same education. We went to the same training programs. We went to uh, find the same employment, even at the same company. We have similar, we're the same family lives. And, but when you look around the room, all of our lives look very different. And then when you look out into the community, they look even more different and to other churches and other communities of Christ. And when we learn bad news or we experience tragedy, we look around us in our own community and we start to wonder, why me and not them? Jesus, why did I get sick, but they didn't? Why did I lose my job, but he didn't? Why did my marriage fall apart, but theirs didn't? Why did our kids walk away from us, but theirs didn't? Jesus, why will I die a death like you, but John won't? And here's the funny thing. Jesus doesn't give Peter a direct answer, does he? He doesn't say, well, like I said before, it's because I like him better. He doesn't say, well, Peter, you denied me. And John didn't. So John deserves better. He didn't say, you know what, frankly, I just see more potential in John than I see in you, right? Instead, what he effectively says is, I'm sovereign, Peter. You know that I'm good, so stop comparing and start following. You can't follow Jesus if you're constantly stopping to compare yourselves to other disciples, right? It's not because God liked her better than you, which is why she didn't get sick, but you did. Okay? It's not because God values their life more than yours, which is why they kept it all together and you guys haven't. It's not because God sees more potential in him than you, which is why you were passed over for promotion, but he was not. God is sovereign. He is good. We've already read it, but let's read it again, Romans 3.28. And we know that for those for whom God... Or for, and we know that for those who love God, all things even the bad things. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In Christ and in Christ alone, you're complete, you're whole. God loves his people equally because he loves his bride. We are his bride, his church. But that doesn't mean we all live equal lives. Don't let comparison rob you of the joy and the mercy and the grace and the love that comes with following Jesus. You have to stop and look to compare. And you can't do both at the same time, Jesus says. So when those moments come, we ought to pray to the Spirit that we would resist them and that we would resist those thoughts with the Word of God. When, when you hear the enemy tell you, well, you know it's because God likes that person a lot better than you, right? Or you know you're a screw-up and that person's not and they have it all together. That's why they're blessing that family. Ask the Holy Spirit, is this true of me, right? Uh, in my identity in Christ, 
Am I incomplete? No, because Christ is complete and you are hidden in him. Your identity is in wholeness. Is this true of me? Has God allowed this to happen because he loves me less than her? Because he cares for me less than him? Because he favors us more, or them more than us? Listen to the Spirit whisper back, no. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together in Christ, Ephesians. No, because in humility beneath the mighty hand of God at the proper time, God will exalt you, so cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's paraphrasing 1 Peter. And no, because now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off were brought near by the blood of Christ. So, Jesus tells us in this conversation not every disciple of his is going to share the same experiences. But that's okay, because Christ is not calling us to share the same experiences. He's not calling us to an outcome. He's called us to obedience. Every disciple he's called to obedience. And that obedience is found in our following him, in our pursuit of him as he pursues us. Follow me, he said to Peter. You follow me, he says in specific. So it's even more emphatic. If ever there was a command of Jesus to understand, to comprehend, to meditate on, and to respond to, it's this one. Uh, and I think it, it gets tough for us because there's a lot of voices telling us to follow them, especially in our culture and especially today. Follow me on social media. Hit that subscribe button, right? Uh, follow, follow us in this political movement or this cultural movement. Uh, follow me. I'm an influencer. Uh, I'm a philosopher. I'm an author. Uh, I'm a teacher. I'm a sage. I'm an artist or whatever. Follow me. I've got the right agenda. I have the right goals. Uh, we're constantly being told to follow people and things towards outcomes but there's a couple problems with these calls. First, uh, the world is blind to truth, and all of those calls to follow me are coming from a dark, blind to truth space, right? Remember, all the way back at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John wrote that Christ was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. You can't know something or someone that you, you can't see in, in a full sense, not just with your vision, but to see and to understand and comprehend with your affection, your desire, your heart, okay? It's cold towards God, so it's blind towards God. So where are we led when we follow the world and its influencers? I mean, didn't Jesus warn us in Matthew not to follow worldly Leaders, even ones that look religious, because they are blind guides. How many of you were like, I would love to hike in one of those like Andes Mountains paths where there's like half a mile drop? Well, maybe you don't. You're, you're very different people. But I just want to go hike on a dangerous hike. A guy comes up to you and is like totally blind, has like handkerchief over his eyes. He's like, oh, I can take you there. Like, how many times have you been there? Like, never. 
But I have a map, like, okay, what's with the handkerchief? Like, oh, I was born blind. I'm going to be like, he's like, where are you? <laughs> I'm backing away from that guy. I don't want him to feel bad, but I'm not following you up that mountain. Because you're going to get us both killed, <laughs> right? Let's just be frank. It's not just me that you're endangering. It's you as well. So there's a bit of rejecting blind guides and also telling them, hey, you should come follow this guy who died and rose from death. There's repentance even for the blind guides that the gospel is big enough for them. So no, we, we shouldn't follow these, these blind guides. What I don't want us to hear is that we're not meant to follow anyone, right? So probably one of the famous examples I can think of is uh, 1 Corinthians 11.1, uh, when Paul says, be imitators of me. Okay, you can also translate that as be followers of me, but imitators of better kind of translation of it. So he's extending an invitation to the church at Corinth and other churches in the area to follow him. Why? What's the qualifier? He doesn't just say, follow me, does he? What is it? As I follow Christ. Imitate me as I am of Christ, is his exact word. Paul can extend the invitation of discipleship precisely because he is following Christ. So the object of the followership for both Paul and the people he's extending the invitation to is Jesus. So again, discipleship is not following a person, it's following Christ. Through and with somebody that's followed him longer than you have. Whom the Spirit has sanctified and conformed more than he has in you. And one day you will be expected to turn around and to do the same thing, right? So we're not ditching discipleship, obviously, but we just need to put back on the highest point of the shelf the object of our following, which is Jesus. So we don't follow the world. It's blind to truth. The second problem is that not only is it blind to truth, but it's Christ-less. I mean, the world rejects Christ's power and replaces it with their own. So in Matthew, we we're reminded of it a few weeks ago. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he goes around and he goes to the fishermen who would become his disciples and later his apostles, and he said, follow me, issues that command in Matthew 4, and he, he makes them a promise. I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. And we readily hear this command, follow me, and then we also hear what we'll become, fishers of men. But the thing I think we, we skip past with this passage is how that's going to happen. The issues, or the command is issue, follow me. Here is what I want you to become, fishers of men. But how does that work? Follow me, and I, Jesus is speaking, will make you fishers of men. It's Christ's power, not ours. He's the one doing the making. Worldly fellowship, worldly followership, is issuing the same command, but the promise is empty. Follow me, and we will make you. But where does that lead us? Where does that lead us? It leads us to a lot of different places, right? I mean, just in in the past year, we've seen 
all sorts of different voices from across the entire spectrum of our culture and political system. Follow me, follow me, follow me, and I will make, and I will make, and I will make. And it's not gotten us much, has it? Biblical followership says, follow me, and I will make you. We do the following, Christ does the making. The world does not see that, right? We don't have the responsibility to make. That lies on Christ. Our role is to follow the one who does the making. So what we need then, in approaching this command that Jesus gives all of us, but Peter in specific, to follow him, is a biblical understanding of true followership. It's not like clicking a button on social media, right? It's not following blind guides, but it's hearing and understanding what followership means to Jesus. He began his earthly ministry issuing this command, and he ends his earthly ministry issuing this command. So it's really important, right? Do you remember all the way in John chapter 1, he bade the disciples, follow me. What that tells us is that followership is at the beginning of the Christian life. In John chapter 8, Jesus promised, in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So followership is also a guarantee that its outcome is eternal life. That eventually, where Jesus is leading us to is eternal life. John chapter 10 Jesus taught in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I know them, he says, and they know my voice. What does that mean? There's a relationship. So biblical followership is fundamentally relational. You're not merely following a movement. You're not merely following a principle. You're following a person who knows you and wants you to know him. And then in verse 12, in, in verse 26, Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must also follow me. He links together following and serving is inseparable. It's really important. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Keep that in mind. Wherever Jesus is, a follower as a servant is going to attend him. He's gonna be right there. If anyone serves, if anyone follows, because remember those two are linked inseparably, the Father will honor him. So here's another promise that we're given. Followership is serving, is worshiping God, and it leads to eternal honor, okay? So just from John alone, and we go through the, the entire Bible and talk about followership. I mean, how is Israel led out of slavery, out of bondage? but by following, okay? There's a lot of following going on in the Bible. But here, just in Jesus' teaching in John, we learn that followership is always on the heels of the Lord Jesus because it's the beginning of the Christian life. It's the guarantee of eternal life. It's fundamentally relational, living with God, and it leads to the blessing of eternal honor. That's what true followership looks like. If you're being told to follow me by another voice, they cannot offer you any of this. None of it. It's not true followership. 
So what does it look like then to put this true followership into action? I think it's interesting. The word I follow in Greek means to attend to. This is why that passage uh, in John 12 is so important. Attend to is in a king is, you know, traveling from city to city and he's got his attendant, right? Uh, this is your, your golf caddy. This is your uh, lieutenant, right? This is the, whoever's there to serve you and to execute your desires, your will, right? That's what the word follow means. In other words, biblical followership is always a relational service. It's always a relational service to God as we follow behind him and as we attend to him. It's never a leadership ahead of him, God forbid. Hey, God, we want to do this. Come on. And that's kind of how we act sometimes, isn't it? I really want to get this done, or we want, you know, this program up and running, or we're going to, like, I, I don't know. There's a billion examples. I'm sure you're thinking of three that you're guilty of. I'm thinking of 10 I'm guilty of. That's why I'm stopping so it doesn't spew out, right? <laughs> God, this is what I want to do. Let's go. Follow us. Follow me. Nope. That's not how it works. <laughs> and thank God that's not how it works. I love this quote from Eugene Peterson. He says, uh, Jesus never tells us to lead. He invites us to follow. It's a really keen observation in our culture, especially, where leadership is valued and followership is seen as a weakness. God's economy flips it. Jesus never tells us to lead. He invites us to follow. Followership is previous to, as in it begins with, and more comprehensive than leadership. It's actually harder to follow than it is to lead. You know? I think he's right. In the world, it's far better to be seen as a leader, but in the kingdom of God, that position is already and eternally taken. Okay? So anytime you lead God, you're essentially saying, Jesus is not doing a good enough job. He needs to get off the throne and let me sit there for a second. Don't say that. Okay? Right? That is how we got here to begin with. Genesis chapter 3. Okay? It's far better in God's kingdom to be a follower of him. But we hesitate to follow, mainly, I think, because we want to be our own source of authority. We want to be leaders so we can execute our will and our desire and those types of things. And we've harped on that a lot lately. What I want to talk about is maybe another reason why I think we hesitate to follow. Um, one a little more close to home for me personally, maybe you share the same, uh, the same struggle, I personally hesitate to follow because I want to know the itinerary of my life, right? I, I want, how come when I go to a play, I can see all the acts, right? And uh, I know how far, once we get through halfway through the play, it's like, oh gosh, an hour and a half. But at least I know it's over in an hour and a half, right? I know it's coming, right? I want a Google Maps for my life. I want to click destination and be like, okay, I'm going to get there in this. I want to know the play-by-play, -play, okay? And uh, very often, God doesn't offer us one. There's no app you can download on your phone that God will feed you directions about what the rest of your life is going to look like. Instead, he simply invites us to follow him daily to places that he's already been 
in spaces he already is. Think about that. Experiences that he has already experienced, he, he invites us to follow him to, whether they're good or bad. And he's inviting us to follow him to places he already is. Why? Because he's omnipresent. He operates outside of space and time. He is in your future now. So trust him when he says, follow me. Why? Are you guessing what's going to happen there, God? No. I'm already there. And I'm every step in between. Your heart plans, the Lord ordains, says Proverbs. But man, we hesitate to do that. We want the itinerary, but God's not always interested in telling us where we're going. And I think it's because when we know, we imagine, and when we imagine, we often do that incorrectly, don't we? I don't know if this is a great illustration. It's just a story I want to share. I've been to Disneyland once in my life. I was like 12. I was told ahead of time we were going to Disneyland on a vacation in San Diego, and man, my imagination ran wild. Mickey Mouse himself is going to come up to me and greet me. He's going to know my name, my birthday, my favorite color, my favorite flavor of ice cream. He's going to give it to me, give me a hug. We're going to go on roller coasters together. There's going to be all sorts of awesome stuff there. And I was going to get all these toys and the roller coasters. No lines at all. And I was going to get to on as many times as I want. And they'd be like, you know, we're closing the park at 10. But Kyle, we'll let you stay here for the rest of your life. <laughs> and when I got to Disneyland, it was none of that. I didn't even see Mickey Mouse. Bro, this is your house. Like, <laughs> what? You were supposed to be here. I think I saw like one of the princesses. And as an 11-year-old boy, I was like, eh, nah. I don't want to hang out with the princesses, right? And I was, I was disappointed. I was let down. Then, I think it was a year or so later, uh, our school went to an Amish community for a field trip. And yeah, it sounds exactly like what it would be like, right? <laughs> I had zero expectation. I was just looking forward to coming home at the end of the day. But I tell you what, I had a blast. I loved it. Still to this day, when I smell hay, I'm taken right back to that day. Like dipping candles, watching the sky, like sharpen knives. Um, I'm sure I learned stuff. I don't remember. Just talking to the people, they were really, really interesting and fascinating to me. And my memories of that field trip to the Amish community are more fond and pleasant than to Disneyland. And I think a lot of that has to do with I imagine things incorrectly. And I don't wonder if God does not give us the itinerary of our life because he doesn't want to think we get to live in Disneyland for the rest of our life. And he doesn't want us to think, oh, because I'm sending you to an Amish community, you're going to have a terrible time. He's already there. He knows us better than he knows ourselves. Let's just trust him and let him know that he knows what he's doing us. He would invite us to follow him if it wasn't for our good and for his glory. And we need to be open to receiving what he has to give and to be open to trust him in things that we can't know or we can't anticipate, but that he will sustain us through or he will be with us in our joy if those moments are good. The thing about following is that we're not the leader. We don't know where we're going, and that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. Following Christ puts us in a position of where we have to trust in his providence. In other words, we have to trust God's sovereign. He's orchestrating our lives to some kind of ultimate good and ultimate glory for him. I mean, think back to Peter's uh, experience once more. From the world's perspective, Peter's followership did not end very well, did it? He was crucified. Jesus told Peter that he was going to have a death like his own, but that wasn't Peter's ultimate destination, was it? Peter's ultimate destination 
was toward an inheritance and something he wrote to his followers. 1 Peter 1.4. That God has stored up for us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading and kept for you in heaven. And to this day, he is experiencing that inheritance. Why? Because he followed Christ even through death on a cross, one that echoed or mimicked Jesus' death. So the world cannot offer us anything like what Christ offers us. When the world says, follow me, it inevitably leads to an inheritance that perishes, that is defiled, that fades away, and ultimately is reserved for us in death and in hell. Worldly followership leads to the inverse of our heavenly inheritance. I just reversed, inverted the, the list that Peter gives us uh, in 1 Peter 1.4. What this means is this. Follow me is an invitation to unfollow them. Let me say that again, because it's really important for our culture today. Jesus' invitation to follow me is also an invitation to unfollow them. It's a permission to unfollow them. The world and worldly desires is what I mean by them. Are you constantly beset by worry and anxiety? It's probably because you're following the wrong thing. Following the, the winds of change in our world, but that gets really exhausting, doesn't it? So Jesus' permission to follow me, or Jesus' invitation to follow me is also permission to unfollow you can click unsubscribe. You can click log out. You can press and hold delete. It's okay. You can turn it off and walk away. You have no obligation to keep up with all of that. Leave anxiety behind. Follow the Prince of Peace. And the same goes for our sin. Are you habitually returning to the same sin over and over again? It's because you're following the flesh. You're following the desires of your flesh. And that is something with an appetite that never ends. Your flesh feeds on anger, it feeds on fear, it feeds on sensuality and pride and turmoil. It loves those things. And haven't you grown tired of following that, feeding it? Doesn't it constantly lead you to where you don't want to be? You find yourself there once more. How did I get here? Why did I get here? And don't you know that sin's ultimate end for us is eternal death? Jesus has an alternative. He's a different plan for you. His invitation to follow me is the command also to unfollow yourself. Stop following yourself. Follow me. Don't follow your flesh into sin. Follow the incarnate word of God. Don't follow your heart. Follow the heart of Christ. Don't follow your spirit. Follow the Holy Spirit. Turn away from following death and begin to follow life. Repent, turn towards Christ. That is all tucked in his invitation. Follow me. That relational invitation. So nothing about the gospel that can be accepted impersonally. Your whole self is involved, heart, soul, mind, and strength, so that it may wholly follow and belong to Christ. So church, let's be a people who pursue biblical followership in response to this invitation that Jesus gives us. Let's be known as people who are reasonable, who love truth, and who correct with gentleness as we follow the gentle truth. Let's be people who don't compare our outcomes one to another, 
but who all encourage each other to walk together in obedience as we all respond to Jesus' call to follow him. And let us be people who follow Christ, who have unfollowed the world, who have unfollowed the flesh toward an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that's kept in heaven for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel of John. We thank you for our brothers and your servants' example, Peter and John. And we thank you for your word, your son, bidding us to follow him and permitting us to unfollow everything else. Father, I know that it's so difficult for us because I feel in my own heart the desire to want to lead, to know, but you have called us to follow simply and to obey. And so, Father, we repent of the times where we have sought to usurp you in your leadership. We turn away from it, and we turn again to attending to you, to following you closely, trusting that you are good and faithful and able to take us to where you've already been and to where you are now. Father, we love you, and it's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen.